we continue our Advent series here at the fourth Sunday of Advent. And it's a series titled Keep Watch, if you happen to be new to uh, this series today. And it's, it's really about uh, this idea that over the years, somehow our celebrations of Christmas have become more and more focused on the Christmas that happened long ago, celebrating the birth of Jesus. We certainly do that, and that's right, but we must never forget the call to look forward. I mean, Jesus gave it to us himself. He said, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Keep watch. And the early church was a model of this for us. They were looking into the future, expecting Jesus to return, and, and we do the same. You know, focused uh, only on Christmas past, celebrating that Jesus was born the first time, uh, focusing only there would be the spiritual equivalent of hopping in your car, dropping the car and drive, fixing your eyes firmly on the rearview mirror, and hitting the gas. You know, we need to look where we're going, keep our eyes on the road. And that's really the invitation of Advent, keep watch. So far in this series, we've covered that command of Jesus to keep watch for him. We've covered the call to prepare the way for the Lord, that that idea that uh, in in the ancient world, people would prepare a road actually for a coming king. And the way that we prepare the way for Jesus in our life is by repentance, actually changing the way we're thinking, changing our mind about this world and our life and, and who God is in it. And then last week, we covered the practice of actively remembering the future God has promised us in Christ, a place of complete security and the promise that we'll finally catch up to that deeper joy we've been pursuing all of our lives, but which has seemed to elude us somehow in some way. So today we keep watch by learning to expect the unexpected, uh, focusing on Joseph's role in this story of Mary and Joseph. Let's listen to the scripture. A reading from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So my wife Crystal and I are in the reading training years with our boys, uh, with a second grader and a first grader. And... uh, so th- I'm so thankful to be married to a teacher uh, and, and to uh, other teachers who equip parents well to train their kids. And I, I um, 
since Crystal was working and is teaching now, I was our representative at the parent-teacher conferences the last go-around. And one of our teacher, teachers gave us a great list of questions to ask kids after they're done reading a story. You know, so it's the kind of comprehension stuff, these kinds of things. So here, here are some of them. Why is the title a good title for that story? Well, that's a good question. If you had to give the story a different title, what would be another good title for it? What was the problem in the story? Was the problem solved? How? Did the characters in the story try different ways to solve the problem? What worked? What didn't? You, you get it. You know, just these questions about are, are we grappling with the, the, the story, you know? So was there a problem in our story this morning? <laughs> yeah. It's a big problem. Here, here it is. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Problem. Mary is pregnant before getting married. And at one level, we kind of understand that problem. Um, you know, timing's off, not quite the way we were planning it, but when you do the cultural homework on this one, you really realize what, uh, how big a problem it, it really was. And that is important to understanding not only Mary's openness to the unexpected, which was great, but more the point of this sermon, Joseph's openness to the unexpected. So hold that in your mind as we surf through the text. You know, the, fir the first century of Jesus' day was, um, was guided by an honor-shame culture. You might have heard a little bit about this. I, it, it's, a, it's a more society-based approach than an individual-based approach. I, I remember a very distinct image of that difference between kind of Western and Eastern culture, at least. Uh, a guy from my hometown, Dayton, Ohio, this was years ago, probably uh, back in the late 80s, maybe. He and his family traveled to Singapore, I believe it was, where he proceeded to vandalize somebody's car in Singapore. He spray-painted it. And in our world, we think, oh man, vandalism, that's not good, not good. But in Singapore, the punishment was public caning. They took him to the city square, strapped his arms around the pole, and caned him with a stick of bamboo, publicly. And there, in our country, there was an outcry. It was just van, it was just a car. Just what, huh? And you know, I remember the, the response of the leaders in Singapore, like, yeah, he spray painted somebody else's car. Like if we let that happen in society, what's next? And, and in that kind of spirit, there, there builds out an honor and shame culture where the most important thing is the honor of the family. And, and a person behaves to protect their honor and thus the honor of their family. It, it's the, the highest priority to maintain that integrity and the honor of your family name. Mary and Joseph were pledged to be married. Now that's more than our engagement. They're actually in, in that day was a, a, something kind of like betrothal, which was a formal legal contract. The couple was not technically married yet, but being 
pledged to one another to be married was a contractual obligation that could be broken only by adultery or divorce. They were committed to one another. And once betrothed, once this commitment had been made, the man would go back to his family's house and begin a construction project. He'd start an addition, build an extra room on his family's house. He was preparing a place for his bride. And when he completed their new living space, then he would be released to go and actually be married. And there would be a week-long celebration. And then the husband would take his bride back with him to be with him where he was in the place that he had prepared. And if you're less familiar with the Bible, you might not be catching the echoes of John 14 when Jesus speaks to us. And we take these to mean uh, a, a direct reference to our own death to this life. That Jesus goes and prepares a place for us and he promises to come back and to take us to be with him where he is. He's the bridegroom actively preparing a place for us even right now. More than excited for that day he will return to take us to be with him where he is. Not begrudgingly, but because he delights in us and wants us to be together forever. This is the image of how Jesus relates to us. So Joseph is, is at his parents' place, slaving away on this addition day after day. Can't wait, can't wait to get it done so I can be married to my, my betrothed Mary. But before they came together, Mary was found to be pregnant. We'll come back to Joseph. But this was much more than just an inconvenience for Mary. You know, in a society-based culture, there's the honor-shame thing. In our individualistic kind of entitlement culture, the response is, is a little bit different. You know, oh, well, it happened a little early. No harm, no foul kind of thing. That was not what Mary experienced. People's jaws would have dropped. Her family was instantaneously confronted with an untenable choice distance themselves from Mary, abandon their daughter, and thus distance themselves from shame and maintain their honor, or keep their daughter and take upon themselves her shame. And the family's response needed to be quick and without hesitation. And uh, evidently, from other parts of Scripture, we learn what Mary's family decided. They bailed on her. They distanced themselves. You remember the story of Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, and we, we get that, that line, there was no room for them in the inn. You remember this. I mean, culturally, you need to know, there, was no, there were no motel sixes. <laughs> there were no even bed and breakfasts. There, there was no public accommodation for travelers. It wasn't like you went up to a business and said, hey, can I have a room? And they said, oh, sorry, we're full up. You know, it's, it's cherry festival. Um, what that, what that means is it was a guest room in somebody's house. So what happened there is Mary went back to her family's city of origin where she had more relatives than anywhere in the world. And she went to each and every relative's house and said, hey, could we have the guest room? And they said, no way, Missy. We know what you did. Look at you. No. 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 No, 
No. So I guess we're sleeping with the cows and the sheep. Her family abandoned her in the honor and shame culture. It was a huge scandal. Can you imagine her trying to explain it to her parents? Our dear brother Verlin Verbruggi, who pastored the Woodland Drive-In Church for years and years, has written a wonderful little book on Christmas called A A Not-So-Silent Night. He unpacks a lot of the cultural stuff behind Christmas. He has us imagine this scenario between Mary and her parents. Mom, I'm pregnant. What? You've never left the house. How did this happen? Who's the father? God is. What do you mean, God is? Who's the father? Well, an angel came to me and told me that I was going to be pregnant with a child who would be, quote, son of the Most High. He said the Holy Spirit would make me pregnant. Come on, Mary. You think your father and I were born yesterday? We know it was Joseph. No, it wasn't Joseph. He had nothing to do with this. It was God. Mary, how could you? How could you? Mary's family made their choice. So her only lifeline was Joseph. But his situation was a huge problem too. Can you imagine what was going on in his mind? Nice little Mary was not what she appeared to be. On the outside, humble and sweet and innocent and faithful and righteous, but evidently, now what do I do? And she duped everybody. And and we read this. This was Joseph's decision. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph was faithful to the law. He He was a faithful Jew. He loved the scripture. And yet he did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. Those two things were in conflict. See, faithful to the law as any good Jew would be, that law that required justice in situations of wrongdoing, that law that said to overlook a wrongdoing was an evil in and of itself, justice said Mary needed to bear the consequences of her behavior, but Joseph didn't want her to suffer the consequences. He was merciful. He understood what the implications would be for Mary. A life of isolation and suffering In essence, a living death penalty. Joseph had God's law in his heart. He had the scripture in his heart. He had been shaped by it. He was both just and merciful. He remembered Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And you can hear his prayer, can't you? Pleading. But God, what do I do in this situation? I want to do all of that, but what do I do? What what do you do when mercy and justice conflict? What do you do when pursuing justice is unmerciful and when expressing mercy is unjust? Really now, what do you do? Because you have a bent. We all do. You know, are, are you more wired in the way of saying, hey, it's right, it's right here, it's written down, boom, boom, here's how it is, went off the reservation, 
No more discussion. Or are you more, hey, it's written down, but you know, I, I get it. We're, we all make mistakes and we all, come on, let's, let's kind of do, you know. I mean, where, where are you? Because it's important to know that in our efforts to follow Jesus more faithfully. Joseph decided. You know, he would divorce Mary. That would be justice. Because if he went through with the marriage, he would be admitting tacitly that he was the father. But he would do it quietly. That was mercy. Because he would take a hit on Mary's behalf. His community would perceive him as the one breaking the betrothal contract. His name would be shamed. His family would bear some shame. So he would act justly and mercifully, and it would cost him. Now, he would bear some of Mary's guilt at his own expense. You know, as, I, as I was reflecting on this this week, I, I had this thought that as much as Mary was a very fitting earthly mother for Jesus, Joseph was a very fitting earthly father for Jesus and a Christ-like example for us in this. You know, substitutionary atonement is the idea that Jesus stood in our place and bore our guilt for us. And I love what one of my favorite commentators writes about this. Substitutionary atonement is not only doctrinal truth done by Christ for others, It is also ethical truth done by Christ's people for others. Meaning, when we follow Jesus, sometimes we're called to absorb guilt for others. Ethically, to take the hit for other people, sometimes. And Joseph chose that path He would do the right thing the best he could. He would take a public hit for Mary and divorce her. And then, something completely unexpected, which you know is already coming. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now remember that going ahead with the marriage would be interpreted by his whole community, Joseph's whole community that is, as him admitting that he was the father. This then would bring that shame on his family, not just him. So now his whole family is in the mix. And this angel is saying, you, you got to take the hit for the team here. You know, basically taking Mary home as his, as his wife would mean that his reputation would be shot. His life as he knew it and had hoped it to proceed would become a dwindling dream in the rearview mirror of his life. Gone. He already had a plan. Right? It, was a, it was a God-like plan. It was a noble plan. It involved justice and mercy. It was an honorable plan conceived by an honorable man seeking to live out his faith the best he could. It was a good plan. And then an angel, and that word means messenger of God, tells Joseph to do something completely unexpected. Take Mary home as your wife. 
but, but, but the Bible says justice. It, but the Bible, but, but I've always been taught that you do the right thing, and and this this isn't that. But, but my community would misunderstand. This would be dishonoring my father and mother, and I thought I was supposed to honor them. So easy it would have been for Joseph to wake up from that dream and think, well, no more frozen burritos for me. That was, that was crazy. Where did that come from? That can't be God's will because I know the Bible. That can't be God. And yet we read, you know, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He did what the angel said. There's a really, really important thing here. It was was probably a couple years ago. I was... Uh, then reading through the scripture in a year, which we'll be invited to do as a whole church family. But on on that day, I was uh, reading a part of Luke's gospel, and it was this little story where the crowd on the beach got so big that Jesus had to hop in a boat and push out to shore a little bit, and then he taught the people from the boat. And it it was Peter's boat. Peter came from a family of fishermen. And then uh, Jesus teaches, and then the scripture picks up with this. When he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that's Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I mean, Peter was a professional fisherman. This is how life worked back then. You know, you did what your family did. Peter's father was a fisherman. That was his job. Peter and his fellow professional fishermen had fished all night, plying their trade with master-level expertise. Their fathers had taught them this. They knew all the tricks. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. They knew every cove. They knew every shallow. They knew how the fish moved. It's really not that big of a thing. That's the reality behind Peter's words here. He knew everything about fishing. And this carpenter's son is going to tell him how to fish? Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I mean, that that reality is what makes Peter's next words so compelling. But because you say so, I will. Because you say so. Now, it, made, it made no sense to Peter. It was completely unexpected. But because Jesus said so, he did it. It made no sense to Joseph. It was completely unexpected. But because God said it so, he did it. I mean, we, we practice waiting in Advent, and part of that is nurturing 
our expectation of the unexpected because God will bring that to us in this life. Nurturing our expectation of the unexpected. But it's not just learning to expect that which is unexpected. It's really the next step that's important. What do we do with that? I want to submit to you that the Peter model is a wonderful place to start. But because you say so, Lord, I will. This is really the difference between believing in Jesus in your head and actually trying to follow Jesus with your life. Because you say so, Lord, I will. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? God, please nurture in us an openness to what you're doing in this world. So often I feel like I have blinders on blind to the glaring reality that you created all of this. We can see it by simply walking outside and looking up or even looking at one another. You are the creator. Thank you that you have created. Thank you that you didn't just create this world and and set it off on its own to unwind by itself. Thank you that you sustain us, that you hold all things together. Thank you that you value life so much that you not only created it, but came back to redeem it, to buy it back, to make it new again. Make us new again, Jesus, please. Help us expect what you bring to us that that we don't naturally expect and give us that, that spirit of Peter that because you say so, we will. Help us to hear you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.